Well, good morning, church, and uh, welcome uh, to all you college students. You know, some of you may have may thought it was a little bit um, harsh with um, Chris there Shanghaiing you into the choir. You didn't know that that's happened to me uh, before. Uh, in fact, he's actually pulled me up and, and, and handed me a tambourine before, okay? Chris loves his tambourines. In fact, he's got a bunch of them uh, hidden around these different places. So come back next week. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. And uh, just see what might, might happen. Well, you may have noticed in our worship guide, we've got two things uh, in our bulletin. Um, one is a white piece of paper. And this is a worship guide that I invite you to kind of follow th- along uh, in the sermon uh, with us this morning. And then there's also a blue sheet of paper. And this is for members of Rocky. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that many of you have already filled this out. But if you're a member of Rocky... Uh, and, and you have not, I'd like you to go ahead and pull it out with, with me right now. Uh, I actually have not yet filled this form out. And maybe you're wondering, um, how am I going to uh, fill it out? What, what will I circle? An A, a B, a C, or a D? Well, let's bow and pray together for wisdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for uh, the joy of having uh, Robbie Gray on our staff this last year, uh, or 11 months. Lord, as a minister among us, um, Lord, I pray your blessings on him and his family, and I pray your blessings on our church as we prayerfully seek uh, your will together regarding him coming on as, a, as an elder at Rocky. Lord, we, we thank you for the blessing you've given us in every leader that we have, but I thank you for the, the unique ways that Robbie has already been a, a great help to us in uh, making you known in our community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I'll just, full disclosure here, I'm writing, I'm circling A. Um, I believe it's time for us to um, help uh, transition Minister Robbie to being Pastor Robbie. And if you're wondering what in the world is, is the difference? Um, well, first of all, let me just say this. Did you know that all Christians are called to be ministers? You may think, really? Uh, I thought that's what we paid you to do. Well, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, that would be um, the leadership of the church. For what? Well, keep reading. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. The work of of ministry. The, The actual Greek word here is diakonoi, which comes from the same word that we get the word deacon or servant from. So the work of ministry is the work of service. A minister is a servant. And what we see here in this scripture is that God has called all of his people to be involved in ministry. And my job and Robbie's job and and Pastor Bill's job and all the elders of our church's job is to equip you to be ministers in your family and in your oikos, in your community, those who are around you, and, and some of you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so that's our job. And, and so um, Robbie is an example of a good minister. Um, he's done a great job these last 11 months, um, just for one, helping Bill and I with, uh, uh, and, and our staff 
with, with uh, administration and kind of helping us organize a little better. He's, he's done an awesome job helping us grow in discipleship, helping our, our life groups think through how could we better minister to our missionaries, um, uh, our quads growing, and we, we would love to have Minister Robbie become a full-on pastor. Now, if you're visiting and you wonder, well, um, what's the difference between a minister and a pastor? A pastor is the same in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. There's actually three different Greek words that are translated pastor, um, overseer, or elder, and they're all used synonymously, okay? So an elder is a pastor, pastors and elders. So that's why we don't call our ministry staff pastors until they have gone through the process of becoming elders. And uh, we believe the elders have examined Robbie, and we believe that he meets the qualifications we see in First Timothy and Titus. And uh, we, are, we, we are eager to see him come on as a, um, uh, an, an elder and a pastor, but we want to get you, the church's, um, um, feedback on that. So if you've pulled this out, you can circle A, B, or D. Unless you are ignoring my prayer, you cannot circle C, which says, I haven't prayed through this decision. Okay? Uh, and that wasn't just a ploy. Um, we always want to be prayerful in what we do, but sometimes we have conscientious people who feel like they haven't fasted and prayed for days, so they circle C. Um, if you join me in prayer, you don't need to circle C. Please circle A, B, or D so that we might uh, get your feedback. And if there's anything you'd like to talk to us about regarding this, um, you can, if you circle D or, or anything, but just put a note on here and we'd love to sit down and, and talk with you as well. There's a red box in the back um, for, el- or for, for members. Uh, please make sure you've, you've done this. This is part of your membership covenant. And, uh, and then please just drop it in that, in that box on your, on your way out for members. Well, I said already, Robbie's a good example to me of a solid stand-up minister. But the truth is, there is no perfect minister but one. And that would be the good minister. And that would be the good shepherd, Jesus. And so what can we all learn about ministry from Jesus from this passage, from these nine verses that Pastor Billy read for us this morning? Well, let's look at them again. Um, I'm going to read through these verses one more time, and then I'm going to look at, I'm going to propose three things that I believe that we can learn from Jesus Christ in this passage about ministry, about being a good minister. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. All right, well, a couple things right there, and this isn't one of the, one of the three that I was going to share with you, but, but I will say that a good minister seeks to duplicate himself, and so we see Jesus was doing that in empowering his disciples to baptize, right? And, and so, uh, but what we see here is that his ministry was gaining attention, and, and he was becoming quite popular in the regions around Jerusalem, in the, the regions of Judea, such that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were noticing. Now, perhaps Jesus was avoiding an inevitable conflict with the government, whether that would be Jewish or Roman. The Pharisees were cooperating at some level with the, the, the Roman overlords. 
Um, but for whatever reason, uh, perhaps that he realized his disciples needed more discipling first before he would be taken from this world and they would be sent out to change the world. Uh, Jesus decided it was time for a strategic withdrawal back up to the more remote region of Galilee. So we read, and he had to pass through Samaria. I've got a, little, a picture here uh, just to kind of give you a, 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 a visual here of the uh, region here. Uh, you see Samaria in the middle, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some history in a moment here. But what you can see is that the most straightforward path from Judea up to Galilee would have been through the region of Samaria. And so we read, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right. Well, thus saith the word of God. This is the word of God. You may think, well, okay, uh, you know, let's keep reading. And, and don't worry, we will next week. We're going to get into this amazing um, conversation uh, where Jesus talks about living water, okay? And, and, and we're going to see how God, through Christ's word, transforms this Samaritan woman's heart. But I want to point out three specific things from the text that I just read, um, particularly the last few verses, that we can learn about being a good minister which I hope you've got now doesn't just mean folks who are on staff at a church uh, or people who have been uh, called to serve as elders, but that means all of us if you are in Christ. Well, the first thing that we see here is that Jesus ministered across barriers. He ministered across barriers. And the first and most obvious barrier in this text that he ministered across would be cultural barriers. So look again at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now an alternate translation for that parenthesis you might see in the ESV Bible, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, would actually be Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. That's actually kind of a more literal translation. So what was the big deal with Jews and Samaritans? I'm, I'm glad you asked. In 772 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and its capital, Samaria. And of course, this was God's judgment. It was a wicked empire but was used in God's sovereignty to judge his people for their apostasy. And so the Assyrians came in, slaughtered a ton of people, and then they deported many Israelites from Samaria, and then they imported many Assyrians and other foreigners into Samaria. Okay? And 2 Kings chapter 17 actually explains to us how the intermarriage of Jews and various ethnicities of Gentiles 
resulted over time in a blended nationality and a blended worship in Samaria. So some of the Jews, kind of the stragglers that were left behind in Samaria, uh, married with the Assyrians and other ethnic groups that came in who were pagans, who worshipped false gods, um, as well as some of the Jews that actually went into the Assyrian Empire, went to Nineveh and other places, many of them actually intermingled and married um, uh, uh, pagans, and then some of them came back. And so the Samaritans syncretized their worship of Yahweh God with idolatry to the point that later as the world became Hellenized or became more Greek, they actually dedicated their temple, their version of the temple, on Mount Gerizim to Zeus. So, so, so in some of their minds, they were thinking, well, yeah, it's, you know, the, the old God of Israel who led us out of Egypt. Uh, we'll call him Zeus. It's kind of an all paths lead to the sea kind of syncretism. Uh, maybe something that you would find if you, if you went down the street uh, and you drove for a few miles, you would find a Unitarian Universalist church on the left that would say, yes, the, the Buddhists are right and the Muslims are right. Um, God loves everybody. Everybody ends up in heaven. You can call him whatever name you like, but Jesus is not the son of God. Um, that, ten, that tends to be the, the universal tenet there. All right? So um, you can... Imagine what a God-fearing Jew from the southern kingdom might have thought all about that. Now, in 587, the Babylonians came and raised Jerusalem, and they carted off most of the Jews from the southern kingdom of Judea into captivity in Babylon. But those Jews did not intermarry with the Gentiles. In fact, many of them during their exile in Babylon actually leaned into their faith in Yahweh God. You can actually read some psalms that were written during the Babylonian captivity as they lament uh, and miss the worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem. So when they returned during the days of Nehemiah and Ezra to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, they found their neighbors to the north to be most unappealing. And and they found the Samaritans to not only be treasonous and heretical, but to be difficult. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, we read that the Samaritans tried to sabotage the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, if you remember that. Sanballat, Tobiah, those were Samaritans that were mocking and, 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 and causing all kinds of grief for Nehemiah and his men as they went about rebuilding the wall. You know the story, they, they worked with a trowel in one hand and kind of held a sword in the other, right? Uh, so they had endured persecution at the hand of some of the Samaritans. So a deep hatred developed, and it was an ethnic hatred, and a, a, it was a, a religious hatred that developed between the Jews and the Samaritans over the centuries. One Jewish prayer that was actually prayed by rabbis said, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. That's a little harsh, do not think. Devout Jews would actually cross the Jordan and and travel around Samaria when journeying between Galilee and Judea. And we'll talk about that in a minute, right? So if you're coming north to south, south to north, it'd take longer. But if you were like a devout Jew who really couldn't stand these people, 
You'd rather travel through a full-on Gentile land than through the land of the Samaritans. And they would never think of associating or conversing with or drinking from the same water bucket or, or jar as a Samaritan, for they would become unclean. So what did Jesus do? Well, he walked right through the heartland of Samaria, and he asked a Samaritan woman for a drink from her water jar. In other words, he ministered across cultural barriers. He, 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 he not only crossed cultural barriers, but he was destroying some of this animosity, right? Seeking to, to bridge to people's hearts so they could come to know the truth. He ministered across cultural barriers. Now let, let's think for a moment how Jesus' example of crossing culture here contrasts with the modern pragmatic homogeneous principle, which is practiced in a lot of churches today, evangelical churches, right? Which basically says that, that people are best ministered to by people who come from the same cultural background, the same ethnicity, even the same social economic class. So the idea is, hey, you know, athletes are the best at reaching athletes. You want to reach doctors, you got to have doctors reach doctors, teachers reach teachers. Um, it really doesn't work for the top to reach the bottom, the bottom to reach the top. That's not the example we see of Jesus, right? And, and the beauty of the church is that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And that's the beauty of the church here. Even in a, in a military community, uh, maybe on base there's all kinds of, you, you, you are associated by your rank, but here in the church, instead of calling a, 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 a woman or a man sir, uh, you, you, you call them brother or sister, right? That's the beauty of the church. Uh, we don't look at you, we don't look at each other based on how much we make or what our job is or what our rank is or what our cultural ethnic background is. We look at each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who are one. Now as we work through John 4, Notice, and, and, and we'll see this more in weeks to come, notice how the Samaritans received and fully believed in Christ versus the Jews in, in John chapter 2 who saw all the signs. Remember, it says it, they, they saw these signs of the feast, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because their faith wasn't real. They didn't fully believe so John 2, 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, and yet Jesus did not trust, entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. That would be, they were fair weather fans. Well, look at John 4, 42. These are the Samaritans that I just described to you with their background of, of heresy. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They got it first. They received him, and they didn't even see all the signs. They just heard his voice. They heard his word. Remember Jesus saying later, blessed are those who, who, who don't necessarily see, but they believe. They, they hear it. They hear the gospel message, and they believe. Well, here we see Jesus minister across cultural barriers, but
but he also ministered across gender barriers. Verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, conscientious rabbis did not talk to women in public. Jesus here is not only talking to a woman in a public space, but from the context, it appears that they were alone at the well. So this conversation would have been completely taboo culturally. In fact, we see later in the chapter, in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. You know, what's he going to do next? Uh, this, you know, our, our leader here is crazy. What is he going to, first he's got us walking through this region, and now he's talking to a woman. We can't leave him alone. The rule of male-female separation in Jesus' day was similar to that of, let's say, a place like Afghanistan today, a place that I'm pretty familiar with. And when we lived there as a family, I, I remember... Um, it was really strange having to completely ignore women in public. But what I, what I learned was if I stopped and, let's say, held a door for a woman, the fact that instead of being seen as chivalrous, I am paying attention to her. And it's likely she would get beaten when she got home by a family member for, for somehow uh, that inappropriate attention. I would not be doing her any favors. So what I had to do was, was learn to just completely ignore women in public, not to look at them, not to acknowledge them, just to try to tune them out as if they weren't there. And then we came back after three years, and, and suddenly you show up at church, and women are coming up to you and hugging you. It was shock, culture shock. And, and then my brother Thomas gave my wife Beth a lift somewhere, and Grace was sitting in the back seat, and she would just thought this was, this was evil. Um, you know, even though he's her brother-in-law, mom should not be sitting in the front seat next to another dude who's not her husband right? She was, you know, six-year-old Grace was upset about that, right? Well, I, I, I had to learn to, to it, it was really strange, but generally speaking in public, act as if women didn't exist, okay, uh, for their own well-being. And, and then after about a year, I was offered an opportunity to come in and, and teach a course uh, at the university. And I was, and at the time, they, they, they did not have mixed classes. So it was just a, it was a, a, a female class of, of college students, university students, and a separate female or male class, right? Well, who do you think were the better students? The women, of course, all right? Um, far, I mean, I, I just think they're smarter, but for sure they were more motivated. I mean, they wrote amazing papers. They had amazing dreams about life. Uh, and I, I felt like I was walking almost like on, into holy ground every time, like just like almost like intimidated. You know, I had another older um, uh, uh, male from the, from the faculty in there with me at all times, you know. Um, but we, we had all kinds of discussions about life and, and the meaning of life and opportunities for me to very carefully, very, very carefully try to bring in a Judeo-Christian worldview and, 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 and start in seed form pointing to the gospel even. And, and, and I remember one day when, when uh, they had Teacher Appreciation Day and they all wanted to get a picture with me. And I was kind of like, oh, I, I would be standing next to a bunch of Afghan women, you know, I'm just waiting for, you know, to get shot or something out there in public. But they gave me socks. I'll, take a, I'll let you ruminate on that for a minute. 
<laughs> they give me a bunch of socks. So that was nice of them. Um, but um, uh, there were times I would see a student of mine, and normally uh, when we're in the city where we lived, when Afghan women went out in public, normally they would put on a, a burqa so you wouldn't see their face, you'd never know. Uh, but sometimes the braver ones would wear what's called the chadar namaz. And it was a head-to-toe covering, but it, it showed their face, right? And there were times I would be out in the bazaar and I would catch a glimpse of one of my students. And, and yet I had to just not acknowledge her. It was the strangest, weirdest thing, okay, for her own well-being. Uh, until there was a day... I was actually at the Kabul airport, and there's always anomalies and, and exceptions to any rule, right? And so I had this, this student who went on and became, she went to grad school, I think she got a Fulbright, came back to the U.S., went back and taught at the university. And, and I bumped into her at the airport in Kabul, and she's with her husband, and, and I'm trying to talk, to, I'm just like, I'm sitting next to her husband, I'm talking to him, and he moves over so that she could sit next to me. I'm like, this is the weirdest thing, this is crazy. Um, well, it was, it was a situation where, where she was more educated than him, and he actually, in her mind, or in his mind, she had higher status than he did. It was really, really interesting kind of thing. But that was what it was like in Jesus' day, in public, all right? Men and women, there, there was this strong uh, uh, view of separation of the genders. And, and so Jesus here, we see, did not allow the social norms of his day stop him from caring for hearts, for, for pursuing ministry. Now, he didn't do anything sinful or wrong. Everything was pure. But he broke the ice here, and he spoke to her. He, he treated her as a person. He, he gave her dignity, and he ministered to her. Now, we're going to see later that he also spoke truth to her. Okay, he convicted her of sin. But he did it in a gentle, loving manner. She was more than a Samaritan woman to him. She was a soul that he came to save. So Jesus crossed cultural and gender barriers, but also status barriers. What kind of a woman was this anyway that he met at the well? Well, we learn later uh, in verse 17 and 18 of John 4, uh, when Jesus asked her to call her husband, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus shot straight with her. He said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. (laughs) And we'll get into that one in a couple weeks. But this Samaritan was what society would call, and the Bible would call, a sinful woman. She was living in sin, and as a result, in her culture, she would not be considered socially respectable. So notice here, in verse 6, that it was the sixth hour that Jesus met this Samaritan woman. High noon, uh, very hot in this part of the world, suns beating down. This was not the time of day that women would go to the well for water. Normally they'd go in the morning or at evening. So what we see here is that she was going when there would be nobody else, no other women to, to probably put her down or make snide remarks. And so now, There is Jesus, a respectable Jewish rabbi, engaging her in conversation. What might people think? What might my disciples think? Maybe he'd lose some cred with them. But Jesus was more concerned about her soul. 
Remember that this passage comes right after Jesus' encounter with the respectable Pharisee Nicodemus, the, the teacher of Israel. So what did righteous, in quotes, Nicodemus have in common with sinful, quote, woman at the well? Well, they, they both needed Jesus. Jesus shared with Nicodemus that he was the son of man and, frankly, the center of God's plan for world evangelization and salvation, and that was a lot, but he did in very kind of metaphorical language, if you recall. But here, with the Samaritan woman at the well, we see Jesus more directly and more lovingly and gently revealing his very identity to this woman. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the most clear Uh, presentation of his identity as the Messiah that we've seen yet. And it was to this sinful Samaritan woman. So how did Jesus cross these cultural, gender, and status barriers to reach this Samaritan woman? Well, in verse 7 we read, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. I actually needed that, by the way. What we see here is that Jesus took the lower position as he ministered to her. In other words, he asked her for help. He asked her for a drink. What, what might the lower position look like for you in your life when you're seeking to minister to other people? Think about that. We, you know, we tend to, to like coming on from high. We, 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 we prefer, our vanity prefers, to be the answer guy, right? Or the woman who's got it all together that other people just come to and, and then you share the gospel. Well, what would it look like to take the lower position and let somebody else help you and then you share with them? Maybe, maybe you get a flat tire and a person comes and helps you. Maybe that's your opportunity from a lower position. Maybe going and asking a neighbor for advice at the lower position, building that relationship where you're not on top, but you're actually asking for help. You're showing that you value them, that, that you could receive something from them. Let me tell you, missionaries, this is a, a big uh, uh, tool to learn. You, you want people's help. You go and you live in their culture and you say, teach me how to live because I'm clueless. Um, best way you can be safe in Afghanistan is to have local protection, to say, would you take care of my family? I want to be your guest. You do that, and not only do you have their protection, but you have their, you have their ear. Well, note that this sinful woman, the lowest strata of society, she believed Jesus, and, and she actually quickly became an evangelist. In John 4, 28, we read, so the woman left her water jar, and uh, frankly, what do you think Jesus did? I think he took a drink, all right? I think he was really thirsty, all right? Um, But she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So there's much that we could learn about crossing barriers. How might God be calling you to reach out and cross barriers to discipleship? Might be, as some of our folks have done, hosting a family 
from a different culture for a meal or maybe even to come in and live with you or going on a mission trip. Right? We have, we have uh, and I hope you'll come back tonight for Rocky Family Night, but a great opportunity to hear from Tosh and Don about ministry in Thailand. Let me tell you, these folks are open to having visitors and volunteers come out and serve with them. Uh, if you're interested in that, talk to them. Or maybe even going to the field and, and crossing, and we've got all these cool college kids here. Um, let, me, let me encourage you to pray and pray about, could God use you? Maybe you're studying engineering. Maybe you're studying medicine. Maybe you're studying education. Um, God can use um, all of these disciplines to take the gospel to the unreached. I just want to, for a moment, uh, talk about my friend Wayne Paul, who went to be with the Lord a week ago. And they had his memorial service yesterday. And, and while I, I grieve for, for his wife, Bertie, and, and his family, I rejoice for Wayne. Wayne was in his late 80s. Um, it was his time to go be with Jesus and to be whole and fully alive. But you know what Wayne spent the last several decades of his life dedicated to? Advocating for an unreached people group in Afghanistan. For the last 10, 15 years, while he wasn't able to live there anymore, he sent an email out once a week, and he would fast that day just advocating for this people group. And so back in 2003, 20 years ago, he and his wife were in Africa at the time. They realized that they were getting too old to be able to really learn another language or, you know, hit another place long term. But they had heard about this people group, and they just chose to move there for a year and establish a beachhead. And, and, and so they were the first members of the team that I later joined and led in, in Western Afghanistan. And it was his heart to go and, and try to reach one more people group before he died that has led to, that God has used um, to, to, to today. Today we don't know how many, but there may be between 100 and 200 Imat believers in the world. And they're scattered. They're, many of them are up in the hills still, but they're scattered around the world right now um, because of persecution. But God used this man. Uh, and if God can use a, a guy like Wayne, who he was, he was just a, uh, he was a builder, that's what he had done with, with his career, uh, in his 60s, the Lord could use you, whether you're in your 20s, whether you're in your 50s, or your 60s, to make a difference with your life by crossing barriers. So Jesus ministered across barriers, but, but Jesus also ministered, and this is our second point uh, this morning, and don't worry, we're close to landing the plane, the next two points are brief. He ministered through exhaustion. He ministered through exhaustion. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it was high noon. It was hot. The Bible says that Jesus was physically exhausted. Maybe he was too tired to actually continue on to the town of Sychar with the disciples to buy food. So he, he just took a seat and leaned up against this well to recover. So now he's sitting by a deep well dug by Jacob, but he has nothing to draw water with. When you read this, does your mind think that Jesus was really thirsty? Well, you betcha. Maybe you think, well, he's the son of God, so he could hit that divine turbo boost button. Let me tell you, that's bad theology. That's bad Christology. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without 
sin. So when Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, he wasn't pretending. When, when Matthew says that he was hungry after fasting in the wilderness, Matthew was not exaggerating. When John says that Jesus was wearied from his journey here, he wasn't just making that up. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, the Son of God emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his divine prerogative when he took on flesh. In other words, Jesus did it as a real man. So let me ask you a question, and I, I should ask our visitors, our visiting college students, but I'll ask everybody this one. Do you think Jesus was an extrovert or an introvert? What do you think? Who says he was an extrovert? Raise your hand. A few hands. And we do often see Jesus in social settings, right? Uh, In feasts, in the middle of crowds, with a lot of attention focused on him. So maybe he's an extrovert. How many of you think Jesus was an introvert? Raise your hand. Okay, maybe a few more hands there, right? But when, maybe, maybe they like the extroverts raise their hand and introverts raise theirs, I don't know. But, but when he can, Jesus withdraws from the crowds, right? To spend time with his father, to, to recharge the batteries of his soul, right? And, and isn't that what it means to be an introvert? You, you, get your, you get your energy, not with the big group, but you kind of got to withdraw and maybe spend time with one really close friend, um, Well, maybe Jesus was sitting there alone, exhausted, parched in the midday sun, and supremely enjoying a few moments alone, without the pressing crowds, or without his nagging disciples, right? I'm sure, I know Jesus loved Peter, but maybe he was actually enjoying a moment without all the questions, so he's sitting there, and, and, and then he hears footsteps. He, he could have easily ignored her without a word, and frankly, she would have never spoken to him because of all the cultural reasons we talked about. But Jesus ministered to this Samaritan woman through his exhaustion. Now, my experience is that the greatest ministry opportunities that God often gives us are often at the times that we might not choose, maybe the times in which we're tired, Physically, mentally, or even spiritually. And we'd rather look the other way or just chill out. And this is Paul's experience, the way he described his ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he said, For remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So I I agree with these words from a, a seasoned pastor that I read this week. Most souls are won by tired people. The best sermons are preached by tired men. The world is being evangelized by tired missionaries. I'll tell you what, after I moved out of Central Asia, when I would go back, I just, and just the first thing that hit me about all these, my old friends, their eyes, they just all looked exhausted. They always looked exhausted. This guy wrote, you show me a super VBS, or we call it, you know, worship kids camp, and I will show you some tired women. Well, Jesus ministered across barriers and through exhaustion. But finally, and this is our last point here that we're going to end with, Jesus ministered to people personally. He ministered to people personally. 
right? He, he cared about each soul. And, and I want you to look back at verse 4. We read, and he had to pass through Samaria. If you can, pull that map up again for us, if, if you will. Um, he had to pass through Samaria. Well, you look at that map, and the truth is he didn't, right? I mean, a lot of scrupulous Jews would actually cross the Jordan and would head north through modern-day Jordan, uh, up, up to, on their, on their way up to Galilee, and they would cross, cross over again on the, on, and, and would bypass Samaria. So why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Why does the text say that? Well, it's, he had to pass through Samaria so that he could reach this one Samaritan woman. That's what I think the text means. He, he sees and he cares for souls personally. Pastor Matt Carter summarizes John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 with this short sentence. Jesus leaves the adoring crowds in Jerusalem to go rescue a needy woman. That's why he had to pass through Samaria. And I think he had a bigger strategy in mind as well. Carter, this pastor, talks about the many ways that he could have reached the masses, but he writes he didn't. He went out of his way to find this one woman and show her her greatest need. He came to her personally. Jesus is after your heart. He's after your worship. He's after your joy. He loves you and he wants to make you whole. Whether you're religious or whether you're an atheist, moral or immoral, an outcast or an insider, you need Jesus personally. Now Jesus started here at the lower rung of the bottom of the social ladder. He started with the soul of a Samaritan woman. In fact, with the heart transformation that we see in her, Jesus actually lifted her status in society. He transformed her from a Samaritan sinner to the very first Samaritan evangelist. We're going to see that here in a, in a couple weeks. When we look at John 4, 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Jesus showed that he is a good minister by caring for people personally. And Robbie, uh, I know you care for people personally, but remember this, when you get tired as a minister, never stop, when you got a lot of things to plan, never stop caring for people personally. Jesus opened his heart to hard people, and so should we if we, won't, if we want to make a difference. Kent Hughes warns that it will not be easy if you open your heart. He writes, enlarge your heart, cultivate a ministering heart, and you will enlarge the potential for pain. Why, why does he say that? Because people hurt you. Um, some of you know that. People you try to minister to, that you've led into your home, that you have given your heart to, have injured you. So Hughes continues, will you serve Christ and others or yourself? Your decision will affect the kind of heart you will have. Little hearts, through safe, though safe and protected, never contribute anything. On the other hand, ministering hearts, though vulnerable, are also the hearts that know the most joy and leave their imprint on the world. So do you have a ministering heart? Do, do you want to have a ministering heart? So what, where is your well? Is it, maybe it's your driveway. Maybe it's your fence, your backyard. Maybe it's 
the break room at work? Um, where is that place where you meet people and, and, and engage with them? And, and, and don't hear me wrong. I, I hope you'll invite people to church to hear the gospel. But I hope even more that you'll engage with them in the normal places like Jesus did. Jesus had a ministering heart. The external cultural barriers of society did not stop him. He ministered through exhaustion. He cared for people personally. We read in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Well, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you know that you are a sinner. You're, you're thinking, you know, all this talk about ministry to other people, uh, that's for somebody else because I'm just, I'm a sinner. Well, you know what? Jesus sees you. He sees your heart as he saw the heart of this sinful Samaritan woman and quickly turned her into a minister. He sees you. Call out to him. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as a minister, I, I thank you for the example of the good minister. And I pray you'd make us all more like him. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a heart for others such that we'd be willing to cross barriers that we'd be willing to deny uh, our own privacy, uh, that we'd be we would be willing to deny ourselves our, our own comfort, and that we would see people, that we would see souls, whether we're at Walmart or Publix or at a, at a game or at work. I pray that you would give us the eyes of Christ to see souls. And Lord, I, I pray that, that if there's anyone in this room who's, who's a soul that does not yet know you, I pray that today would be the day that, that they would meet you at the well of their heart. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.